Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes David Pack. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. Today's guest has been blessed with one of the most distinctive voices in the music industry. His standout lead vocals for the rock group Ambrosia have left impressionable hits in our minds over the years, such as Biggest Part of Me, How Much I Feel, Holding On to Yesterday, and You're the Only Woman. Over his hit-packed career, he has continued to write and produce for diverse artists, such as Brian McKnight, Michael McDonald, Natalie Cole, Patti LaBelle, Brian Setzer, Take Six, Bruce Hornsby, Chick Corea, Trisha Yearwood, Linda Ronstadt, and many others. Recently, he released his long-awaited new solo album, The Secret of Moving On, on Concord Peak Records, highlighting vocal collaborations with Journey frontman Steve Perry, Hart's Nancy Wilson, The Eagles' Timothy B. Schmidt, and Dewey Bunnell of America. It's a definite must-get album. We're glad to welcome David Pack as our first guest of the new year to Inside Music Cast. Hey, David, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. All right. Hey, just want to start off. You know, you um, describe yourself as a self-taught musician, and you learned how to play the ukulele at the ripe old age of, like, was it five? Yeah. <laughs> and your father, who's also a musician, bought you a guitar a couple years later. Um, was your dad instrumental in, in teaching you how to play, or did you learn solely on your own? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, you know, it was like uh, everybody needs a little bit of coaching, and my dad had this fantastic Martin ukulele, mm-hmm. and I think I put my fist through it, <laughs> and I think it made him cry, <laughs> and then he, then he realized, I have to teach this kid, you don't put your fist through it, you, you, you actually strum the strings, but uh, he taught me, um, like the song, Ain't She Sweet, and Five Foot Two, mm-hmm. Eyes of Blue, on the ukulele. And I drove everybody crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, I must have played them like 500 times, and my, my dad finally said, okay, I think enough's enough. So he got me a guitar and showed me three chords, and then, and then I was off on my own, you know? Uh-huh. Now, did you put your fist to the ukulele because <laughs> you were upset, or was it just because you were five and you didn't? <laughs> I think I was just trying to get my, my arm in that hole, you know? It's like, you know, you're, you're a young guy, you're exploring, and yeah. I think it was already weak in the back, and I think I, I ended up putting my arm through it. <laughs> this is moving on quite a ways ahead from your childhood, but you had an opportunity to meet Leonard Bernstein when you were 18 years old. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about that experience, and, and how influential was it in your career as a musician? Oh, it was it was like uh, meeting Mozart. I mean, yeah. he, was, he was the most celebrated musician of the 20th century, known around the world for being a prodigious talent, the likes of which the world had hardly ever seen. Mm-hmm probably one of our greatest conductors of all time. Uh, he wrote incredible music like West Side Story and many other things. And um, when I met him, I, I don't think I realized the full impact until a couple of years after I met him, and I really studied all the pieces he'd written, and uh, it shook the roots of my foundation. I didn't really like classical music. Mm-hmm. I was raised on country. <laughs> my mother was from Oklahoma, and we'd listen to Grand Old Opry, and mm-hmm. Classical was just some highfalutin, highbrow thing, you know? Oh, sure. But meeting Bernstein and, and hearing his mass at the John F. Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. it's a long story how it all happened, but a classical recording engineer named Gordon Perry took a liking to my group, Ambrosia, thought we would be possibly like the next Little Beatles or something, and so he mm-hmm. decided to fly me to Washington from California to meet Leonard Bernstein, who could maybe help us get a record deal. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's peculiar. And, you know, it, uh, lo and behold, we hit it off, and uh, Leonard said, why don't you be in my mass next year when we come to Los Angeles? Hmm. Well, he wrote the mass to open the John F. Kennedy Performing Arts Center in honor of John F. Kennedy, and it was an incredible, bombastic piece of music based on the Roman Catholic mass with hmm. rock bands and orchestras and street dancers. And they did a scaled-down version. Instead of 300, they had about 200 at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles here, and I somehow passed the audition, and got into his mass, and that began my friendship with Bernstein. Wow. 
So what, when was that? What year was that? That was like around 1971. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 71, 72, right in there. And uh, I, I think I was about 18. Um, and um, I, I was not a great sight reader, so I had to memorize like two and a half hours of some of the most difficult guitar music you've ever heard in your life, because Bernstein does not write easy stuff. Mm-hmm. He's all over the place. I mean, his, oh, yeah. he loves... You know, any four bars of Bernstein music could be a bar of seven eight, a bar of two four, <laughs> yeah. a bar of three four, combined mm-hmm. with a bar of eleven. You know, mm-hmm. and it was. Uh, I'm. St- I decided after I met Bernstein that I better go to college and learn how to read music. Um, it just was like I don't know. It was like being touched by the hand of God. You know, mm-hmm. it's incredible meeting this man, and you know, he never condescended to young people. He loved young people, and mm-hmm. that was the key to. Everybody loving him and understanding him. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. It, it leads me to my next question. Uh, you know, growing up, as we mentioned earlier, you learned how to play a ukulele and guitar on your own, but but you didn't sight read, as you mentioned. And you then went on to college to study music. And from uh, you know, from the age of five to your college days, you probably became pretty comfortable approaching music through through playing by ear. Uh, what kind of adjustment was it to go from feeling your way through music to learning how to sight read? Was it tough? Yeah, it was. It was awful. You know, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. it's just, it's everything that you, it's, it's kind of like the antithesis of being self-taught because everything is like a mathematical equation. When you, you know, I took music theory and I, you know, it's everything, they, they reduce music to one going to the half diminished two, going to the German doubly augmented, augmented mm-hmm. six, yeah. and then dropping into a lower level progression and all of a sudden, it's mathematics. And mm-hmm. when the mathematics kick in, my brain kicks out, you know? Right, yeah. And I just forced myself to get beyond it and, and just absorb and absorb and absorb because I really heard, started hearing symphony music, and I started realizing I, I want to compose symphonic music. Mm-hmm. So I just forced myself to take modal and tonal counterpoint and to go study with a private orchestration teacher, and I absorbed enough of that stuff to where I was able to then orchestrate a lot of the songs on Ambrosia's records mm-hmm. that I did. That's interesting. Uh, uh, Even including our first number one hit record, How Much I Feel, I mm-hmm. co-orchestrated that with, with the incredible Jimmy Haskell, right, right. who did uh, orchestrated Bridge Over Troubled Waters, and mm. he's an you know, amazing arranger. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, it, I really uh, I felt if I'm going to try to go beyond the Beatles, where, where they sort of hit a wall was they couldn't read music. So if I could, com- you know, my thought was if I could combine both, imagine how far out you could take it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've always, uh, I'm sort of, uh, I've been playing keyboards for, for years and, you know, pretty much by, by ear. I, you know, I can read charts and so forth, that type of thing. But I can sort of relate to that. As you said, you know, you know where the feeling stops and, you know, uh, hearing by ear, it, it can only take you so far because you go by logic. What chord progression is next? And you can sort of feel it and so forth. But what happens when somebody gives you a chart and says, you know, go to bar 32 and take off from here and so forth? You know, it, 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 it does. Um, I bet you a lot of people are, are limited by that, that, that they don't sure. have the... Well, you know what? If you just, my words of wisdom are, if you just stick with it, you will have a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Just hang in there and, mm-hmm. and force yourself to absorb it because the breakthrough will happen and let me tell you i'm so so glad i did because you know what opportunities i've had to use that have been incredible i I would not have my third career which is as a music director of special events if i hadn't have studied with bernstein and and then later with quincy jones and exactly Mm -hmm. i mean i studied short scores i bought music by igor stravinsky and bela bartok and debussy and Aaron Copeland and I just immersed myself into the classics. Then I've gone on in my later in my career to be able to conduct sure. and mm-hmm. work with artists like Barbara Streisand, which I did in two or three times, where she hired me to actually arrange and conduct some things for her. Mm-hmm. So it, it's been. I just advise everybody to try to balance. You know, don't be so rebellious as far as being self-taught that you limit yourself. Absolutely. Hey, this is something I pulled off your website, and, and you said something really beautiful there. At least I, I thought I felt it was really beautiful um, regarding harmony and, and like chordal relationships. That I want to quote here. You said, "I feel that harmony is metaphorically like life, and our ability to live and work in harmony with others." Is that an original David Pack quote? Yep, that's my quote. Yeah, I thought that was so, really beautiful. I'm I'm really 
you know, I mean, I was born and raised about 10 minutes from where Brian Wilson was born and raised. Really? Which is, I, I grew up in Torrance, and mm-hmm. the city next door to Torrance is Hawthorne, where, where Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys grew up. So mm-hmm. we, you know, there's something about being here in Southern California and being by the ocean and part of the whole surf culture and, you know, coming of age right at a period of time when the Beach Boys were exploding on the radio and the Beatles and all this incredible harmony. You know, Everly, and prior to that, obviously, Everly Brothers and things like that. But I, I got it, and I instantly fell in love with harmony. And mm-hmm. Ambrosia became, for me, a exercise in trying to write for a harmony band, you know, a group mm-hmm. that had a, a sound with harmony. I mean, because when the Beach Boys sang in harmony, there's just this undeniable sound. It's a brand. You, yeah, you right. know it the minute you hear it. It's Beach right. Boys. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try to create that with with Ambrosia and and then subsequently other projects I've worked with and I, to me I, a melody and harmony is so important in everything I do. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about um, you know another person that's probably has uh, you know harmony the same um, you know understanding that you have. It's a, a guy that you work with quite a bit, Michael McDonald. Um, you work Absolutely. with, you know, yeah. you connect. With, I mean, he's like the uh, <laughs> when you talk about harmonies. I mean, he he has sung back up and uh, and leads on so much, so many endless classic projects. And how did you first connect with Michael? And have you worked with him uh, a lot? In, oh yeah, yeah. I consider Michael one of my best friends in life. Mm-hmm. We became friends when the uh, Doobie Brothers and Ambrosia toured together. We were both on Warner Brothers for years when, yeah. at, the, at the peak of Warner Brothers when it was. I think the greatest label in America, without a doubt, they put us on the road as this thing called the Warner Brothers Traveling Road Show, and it had, mm-hmm. first time we did it was with Fleetwood Mac and Ambrosia, and then the second time we did it was with the Doobies, and it, was, it worked out so well with the Doobies, we just kept doing it over and over and over right. with the Doobies, and, um, and we became instant friends, and we started writing songs on the road, and uh, you know when Ambrosia and the Doobie Brothers broke up, or we went on sabbaticals. Uh, Michael and I were making solo records around the same time, also for Warner Brothers, right. and that really cemented our friendship. And we went on to like do vacations together. We learned how to windsurf. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're pals. <laughs> yeah. And Michael has just let's face it; he's got a very ingenious way of hearing music and creating music. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know a Michael McDonald song when you hear one. And yeah. Certainly, I think Mike has influenced anybody who's a white guy, who's a blue-eyed soul singer, <laughs> so they call it. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> He has paved the way, and I'm certainly, I will put me on that list, because I'm a terminal white guy who hears and feels soul music and oh, R&B. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I've searched for so many years for a way to get that out of me without sounding so white. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, there was an interesting story that I read about the Doobie Brothers when they were uh, searching for their next singer, I, you know, I, when, when before the, you know, they, they invited Michael McDonald to join the band, and uh, I think they heard his tape, and uh, you know, like an audition tape of some sort, and they said, "Let's bring this guy in." And when they brought him in, they couldn't believe he was white. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, he's he's just incredibly soulful. Which Eddie and I had a chance to see him perform uh, this summer with uh, oh Steely oh, Dan. Dan, yeah, Kyle Fagan, yeah, yeah, yep. and great I, show. You know, I heard tapes. I have actually, believe it or not, tapes. Before Michael joined the Doobies, before mm-hmm. they even knew who he was, I have some live tapes of Steely Dan, where Michael McDonald does a cameo vocal, and he he only sang backgrounds, and then on Correct. on one of their songs, uh, and I've, uh, the name of the song, I think it's not my old school, but it's something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's, the, it's that bluesy song. Oh, what is it? Uh, Oh, um, Chain Lightning? Line, Where did you get those shoes? Well, I down, down, down on Stiff Street, and I down, 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 I do. Chain Lightning. Chain Lightning. And I'm telling now, now, brother, where did you get those shoes? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he, <laughs> all of a sudden, they give Mike this step out line, <laughs> and I yeah. heard this uh, in, in the Ambrosia bus, and I went, who in the heck is that singer? Yeah. That guy's outrageous. Uh, and apparently audiences felt the same way. He was like the secret weapon of Steely Dan. Yeah. I, I don't think he sang one full song in any Steely Dan set in the early days. Well, about 15 years ago, they went on a tour with the New York Rock and Soul Review. Right. And he did sing that part. Yeah, I've got, you know, I have that CD, and uh, uh, Michael did sing a portion of that song. Just what you were describing. I mean, and, you know, 
let's face it, he definitely, I think, was also, I think Michael was influenced by Donald Fagan's writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fagan and Becker, and all those incredibly sophisticated chord changes that Mike had. Mike played keyboards, too, so he had those. You know, Mike is really underrated as a keyboard player. He's fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. He is very Let's good. Let's face it, if you're, if you're with Steely Dan touring and you're playing keys and singing backup, <laughs> right. you're playing some very sophisticated changes. I think <laughs> that influenced Michael. You're doing mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Hey, one of my favorite vocal performances of, of yours and, and Michael's as well is the uh, it's from the songs of West Side Story where you and Michael McDonald and James, mm-hmm. James yeah. Ingram performed Maria. And that oh, wow. that was an that was an amazing combination of of talent and vocal styles and I produced that that was my mm-hmm. that was my life project that is the, probably the most difficult and most gratifying project of my life really I spent um, five years of my life just to get that project made I mean, and then another year in the studio working with twenty seven of the biggest stars in the world mm-hmm. um, it was my way of saying thank you to Leonard Bernstein. Uh-huh. When he passed away, I went. The family invited me to his funeral because I was like his son on the West Coast here, and I, I helped bury Leonard Bernstein. I mean, I did the, four, the three shovels of dirt, and oh, wow. on, the, on the third shovel of dirt, I, I sort of said a little silent prayer. I said, "I'm someday, some way, in my own way, I'm going to find a way to honor you." And on the flight home from New York, I wrote a sketch for the songs of West Side Story. Mm-hmm. That's neat. And then spent five years trying to get the record made. Uh, and no label wanted to do it until after I conducted AIDS Project LA with Elton John and Barbara Streisand uh-huh. and Bernie Toppin and Winona and all these incredible stars doing the songs of West Side Story and my arrangements. And that got the record deal that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And then I you know, produced this record and rearranged all of West Side Story. Well, wow. How long? I mean, the inception may have taken five years, but once um, you know the the you got the the label backing you up and so forth. What uh, from the time of uh, they pulled the trigger? How long did it take to uh, produce that project? It was a it was a solid year really? of, of work. I mean, I was in the studio. I I had Selena in the studio with me three weeks before she was, you know, she was shot. Really, mm-hmm. it was her last vocal performance was with me. Doing a boy like producing and arranging a boy like that from really? West Side Story for wow. Selena, and I, spent, I was supposed to spend one day with her, and I ended up spending three days because it was so difficult. And Selena and I kept coming up with all these great ideas, like let's do a, a Latin rap and let's do all these background parts, and then we ended up going to the Grammys together. And I mean, to think that was her last performance, and it was brilliant, and she mm-hmm. played it for her dad and. There was, I mean, there was tragedy even in my West Side Story. Amazing. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I dedicated the whole project to Selena. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the last time David Page from Toto, last time his father, Marty Page, ever conducted. Really? Before wow. he passed away. And he wrote a brilliant arrangement orchestrally for um, Aretha Franklin's version of Somewhere. Look at that. And, I mean, I went all over the world to make this record. I mean, I did Phil Collins in Switzerland. Aretha in Detroit. I did Salt. I mean, TLC and the Jerky Boys in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a huge, huge production, and it is so gratifying to know that it's it went gold. It, yeah, it raised a lot of money for um, music education uh, to the Grammy and the schools, and to the Leonard Bernstein Foundation. It seems to be as it's uh, it's its own uh, musical journey in in a microcosm, you know. That's interesting. I'm I'm a Corpus Christi, Texas boy too. So when it comes down to Selena, you know it's uh, um, you know she's she's from there. And by yeah. goodness, uh, as a Tejano singer and so forth, she was. Um, you know, we, we previously interviewed a producer out of uh, Nashville. His name's Keith Thomas. Yeah, and, he's a friend of mine. Uh, you know, Keith, good guy. He he's he's the, he did a few uh, projects with Selena, and and uh, he just you know he his jaw was on the floor when he when he tried to comment how strong and what kind of a potential singer she was in your three days that you had with her um, before she she was unfortunately shot. Um, I mean, what did you see in her? I mean, did she have some pipes on her? I mean. She was incredible i mean and she you know and let's if you listen to the songs of west side story you can you can still find this record all over the place i mean mm-hmm. online or in record stores it's still 10 years later selling like hot cakes man yeah, that's great at least in, you know in terms of a, of a broadway piece um 
she, she was a very difficult song. I mean, a boy like that is not easy, and especially to find a new arrangement. You know, I, what struck me more about Selena was her as a person, because we became instant friends. I mean, within two days of working with her, we're, we're sharing fried chicken together in the studio. <laughs> and laughing. And uh, I'm driving her home in my car, and we're looking at pictures in our wallet of our families, and we're talking about her husband growing up enjoying my music in Ambrosia and how excited her husband was to, that she was working with me and, mm-hmm. and then getting on the phone with Mr. Quintanilla, um, right. with Abraham, and playing him the results of the fruits of our labor and having him say, boy, you guys, you can tell you put a lot of love and hard work into that, and mm-hmm. Selena smiling, and it just struck me. I'll never forget, you know, a couple of times while we were working together, and she was on the other side of the glass, and I'm producing her vocal, I remember her looking at me and cocking her head in a, in a strange sort of way, almost like hmm. looking at me like she was having a deja vu. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I wonder why she's doing that. And I thought, maybe it's because, you know, she looks up to me from being a guy who's already had some hit records. Mm-hmm. But now I look at it in a different way. I look at it that, that this poor little poor girl was having deja vus maybe about, her life and how short, you know. Maybe she was sensing something. There was yeah. some something in there, wonderment there. There was is. something, and yeah. she would look at me with a, a look in her eyes from across the glass, like with a quizzical look, like there's something beyond this, you know. Yeah. And that's what was really hard for me um, when she was, you know, when she passed away. Mm-hmm. I had to mix that song and listen to her laughter all over the tracks. Oh. Amazing. Oh, it's, and wow. I tell you, I, I cried. I mean, it was. I, I really, it, it broke my heart. What a special family. It, very, very special. Yeah, and, uh, a very special I, family. I, and I'm very proud to say that that song, A Boy Like That, and my arrangement um, ended up on the best of Selena. Right. And, uh, um, so that's, you know, there was a lot of reasons to do that West Side Story project, and I, you don't really realize it till you get into them, that this record was really, really, really big in my life, and mm-hmm. I, I really urge everybody to listen to it because mm-hmm. it's it's educational as well to yeah. hear. It is. There's a, there's a whole variety of, of styles on that on that album too. I mean, obviously, you know, there's there's the various artists, but you know, the um, what was it the the the, the prologue going into uh, um, well, going into uh, the rumble, yeah. the rumble, yeah, Chikoria, getting Chikoria. I mean, well, that was a fantastic piece. To, first of all, take a forty-five-year-old musical. Mm-hmm. And making the arrangements work for each artist so that it sounds like it's, you know, it, it fits each artist's style. Like for Tricia Yearwood to sing I Have a Love, we went to Nashville, and I, I made it sound like a Tricia Yearwood song, mm-hmm. the arrangement. And for Little Richard singing I Feel Pretty, yeah, right. I decided to do a bluesy <laughs> barroom-type <laughs> piano thing, you know, uh-huh. with Greg Fillingames doing this, this kind of funky, bluesy piano. Uh-huh. You know, then for All for One, you know, or, or I mean, the uh, Brian Setzer singing Jet Song, you know, with his big band, you know, mm-hmm. we, it was incredible. So, you know, I love the production on that as well. The production, it was one of the, it was a fantastic recording, number one. But what I loved on the Rumble was the fact that you had, uh, you had one, you had two bands essentially, right? You had you had the the Sharks, you know, represented by a set of players on one side basically, and you had the Jets on the other. Is that correct? And when I say your side, I mean yep. like the way you had it mixed left right. That, and, and in the studio too. I mean, yeah. I, we actually figured out what we were going to do is we're hmm. going to set up set up Chick Corea's electric band on the left, uh-huh. and uh, Steve Vai's Rock Monsters on yeah. the right. Right, Holy right. Cow. And they were facing each other like an actual rumble That's in the studio. Cool. Oh wow! It was all cut at the at one time, right? All cut live with me in the middle conducting and pointing out the cues. And is this thing on video? And you know, I did. Uh. Shoot, I I did shoot with my camera i had my assistant shooting all kinds of footage so <sighs> what i hope to do in, in the future is do a 5-1 surround version right. of this piece and then i will put bonus uh footage you've got to do it uh dvda of the making of this oh, even though i unfortunately don't have any footage of selena singing but oh. i have a lot of the other performances on on tape that'd be incredible and actually, to see. i did a professional video for maria a three camera shoot oh cool so um, someday it'll be that. a DVDA. You've got to do that. And so, anyway, thanks for bringing that up, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and all of it was to thank Leonard Bernstein for what he gave the world. And That's neat. 
you know, my feeling is who'd have thought a little uh, surfer guy like me out of Torrance would mm-hmm. end up even meeting Leonard Bernstein, much less doing a tribute CD to him with the world's biggest stars. And look where it took you. That's neat. That's a beautiful story. You know, um, you know I'm, I'm being Latino myself. I'm, I'm very interested in uh, w- one small project. I think that uh, that you did, and it touched with some uh, some some Spanish artists in 2004. Yeah, it was called Amor Sagrado. Right. And um, and you work with some really interesting. I don't know how many Spanish projects you've worked on, but this one you featured a myriad of, of artists like Los Bukis and Salvador Jackie Velasquez, Marco Antonio Solis, big. Big time um, artists in in the yeah. Latin community. Um, yeah. Tell tell us a little bit about this project. I, I'm I'm personally curious about this. Yeah, no, Amor Sagrado was, um, you know, uh, my my uh, business partner David Schwartz, who is from Indianapolis, like I mentioned. He and I we started a baby media company. You know, mm-hmm. I call it baby because it was just a little media company. Sure. With hopes to become a bigger media company, and the idea was to create spiritually oriented products that intersected with mainstream pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in a, a small way, like the Passion of the Christ movie. You know, projects that had a spiritual sensibility to them that also had mainstream sensibilities mm-hmm. so that they would appeal to a mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. And we really found a need for that in this, you know, Spanish-speaking marketplace. And we went to Univision which, as you know, is the biggest TV sure. station and the, the, the biggest, one of the biggest labels in music, mm-hmm. you know, for Latin music. And we met with Jose Bihar, the president, and he loved the idea of doing a compilation of songs um, about family and love and God. It was mm-hmm. like there were three concepts in Amor Sagrado, mm-hmm. which is sacred love between a man and a wife, mm-hmm. the sacred love between yourself and God, uh, and obviously the love of a family. Um, mm-hmm. And using that as a theme, we picked songs and we picked artists would be in this compilation. And um, we, has a, as a co-producer on the project, we used Jackie Velasquez, his brother, uh, his name is Dion, mm-hmm. and uh, Dion Lopez. And we actually went to the Spanish, in, in Miami, we went to Expolite, which every year is a convention mm-hmm. of spiritual, uh, you know, Spanish music and music yeah. from around the world that audience and uh, we learned a lot really and and from that we put this whole seed we, we picked all the songs ourselves we approached all the artists and they loved the concept and um, it came out on Univision and it was uh, advertised on television through Univision TV so you were able to work with each individual and record the whole tracks no I, I actually no? I, I wish I could say I had yeah I, I actually used mostly songs that were already recorded gotcha and I, but we had to get the permission of each artist. Mm-hmm. So you know, we, we we got to either speak with them directly or with their managers, and they were very respectful and very kind, and they liked this concept very much. So Neat. we actually did two volumes of a Sagrada. We did part one and part two, and uh, we used you know Spanish Christian artists as well as Spanish mainstream stars like Marco Antonio Solis. Mm-hmm. And obviously, and um, like I said, on the Christian side, Jackie Velasquez, an uh, uh, amazing yeah. uh, group of artists, who many of whom I've become friends with since you know that time. Right, I, and it gave me a, a whole new respect for what all of these artists uh, go through, you know, in their respective fields. Sure, that's neat. Where their heart and their soul are, you know, and 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 how much their audience loves them and connects with them. And, how important they are to that audience. Right, yeah. Well, you, you nailed it. It was a very nice project, and uh, it's still out there in the market. People are still buying it, you know? Yep. Um, let's talk Ambrosia a little bit. I want to talk um, uh, a little bit. You know, soon after you and and Joe Puerta uh, formed Ambrosia, right. and you were joined, of course, with uh, Christopher North and, and Bertie Drummond, um, there's, uh, I read somewhere that you guys actually attended a show at uh, a place called the Whiskey A Go-Go. And you you heard a band. Maybe you can tell me if this is true or not. But you heard a band that was pretty pretty new back then, a prog band called King Crimson. And uh, is is it true? Did did this happen? Did you guys go in and because I've read somewhere that it was pretty impactful as to what it did uh, for the future of Ambrosia. Yeah. No, you're exactly right, man. You've done you've done some great homework. Thank you. Now that's that's exactly what happened. Yeah. We we went. We were in a uh, Joe Puerta and I were in a. Uh, kind of a country rock band, kind of like Buffalo Springfield, 
we went to go see a similar type of band called Cactus, Cactus. because they had uh, harmonizing guitars, and we thought that was kind of cool. And we uh, we saw the band, and we really liked them, and then we said, who is this King Crimson group? And maybe we should stick around for the headliner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. We, we noticed that we went to the sound check, actually, and we noticed they had this weird instrument called a Mellotron. And we were like, wow, this thing is amazing. It plays real strings. And <laughs> we, we just felt like we ought to stay or stick around. And, of course, they opened their set, King Crimson did, with the song 21st Century Schizoid Man. Uh-huh. And we were just blown away. We were like, <laughs> oh, my God. What are we doing in a country rock band? This is, it was like one of those, like, the lights just came on. And the next day, we literally did. We went to rehearsal, and we told everybody in our band that we were going to break the band up and start all over again. Wow. That's exactly what we did. We we decided this is the direction. I mean, adventurous progressive rock is where it's at, you know, in our life, and that's we we decided from that point on we're going to find the best musicians in the whole South Bay of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and that's how we formed Ambrosia was to essentially to become a, a progressive rock band. Interesting. So King Crimson, sort of in theory, they they derailed you. <laughs> they, yeah. Well, they they basically they rewired our brains. Yeah. You know, we were just blown away. We were like, oh, my God, this, mm-hmm. is, this is it. <laughs> you know, a, a few uh, few weeks back, we were able to to uh, interview Pat Mastelato, who is the drummer for King Crimson. And uh, he gave us some neat insights on, on the band and, and the approaches uh, and so forth. Uh, but they're a totally cool band. I mean, you know, we, we, we saw Robert, the original King Crimson, which mm-hmm. had Robert Fripp. Mm-hmm. Right. On guitar and Greg Lake, yeah. Emerson Lake and Palmer sure. on oh, bass. Yeah. yeah, it had Ian McDonald, I believe it was, on drums. Look at that. And another Ian on saxophone. I forget his last name. And maybe I'm thinking, maybe it was Ian McDonald on sax and another Ian on. Anyway, it was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> and so, of course, then we decided, well, we better go. We saw Jethro Tull right after that, and then we saw Yes came to the Whiskey like about a month after that, <laughs> and. That was all. That was all she wrote. It was like, okay, this is, this is it. <laughs> you know, once Ambrosia formed, seventy five. You guys put out your your first album. It was a self titled album, and uh, unique. Uh, sorry about this. It's uh, you know Alan Parsons uh, from the Alan Parsons Project fame. Uh, he produced the project, right? Yes, he did. He the first Ambrosia record. He came out from England and he mixed it and co produced the mix down. How did that connection happen? You know, we were listening to Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. And um, the same guy that introduced me to Leonard Bernstein, the English recording engineer named Gordon Perry, uh-huh. spent 30 years recording symphonies all over the world, um, and he had known Leonard Bernstein. Well, he himself, being a classical engineer, after he heard the recordings for our first album, he said, there is no American engineer who can properly mix your record. You guys need somebody like this young genius Alan Parsons, who's done Dark Side of the Moon. Holy cow. We, we didn't know how to reach Alan, so we found the phone number of Abbey Road Studios. Mm-hmm. And we actually called Abbey Road. We took like, I don't know, uh, 30 quarters. We, 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 we couldn't use our band house phones. So we didn't have long distance. <laughs> England, so we, we took a bag of quarters to a phone booth. Literally, we called England. I made the call with, with about 30 or 40 quarters. And, quarters. Alan Parsons actually answered the phone. No way. Wow. He was walking out the door, and he, he noticed the phone was ringing, and the guard was not there, so he picked up the phone. It was the first time he's ever done that. <laughs> and uh, we got to know him right away, and he was coming to L.A. the following week for the Grammys for Dark Side of the Moon, so he agreed to come to our house and listen to our music, and he, he loved it. Yeah. And that's, that's how it happened. And then we ended up introducing him to our record label president, Russ Regan, uh-huh. from 20th Century Fox, and helped Alan get his first record deal to do the Alan Parsons Project. Oh, cool. In which you all four uh, played on that project, too. Which we did, yeah. We Ambrosia played on the very first track on the uh, first Alan Parsons yeah. project, the uh, Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Right. Um, on the first album, you it it, uh, it featured uh, there was the hit uh, "Hold On to Yesterday," which to this day I put that thing on and I'm like, I'm, I'm just uh, I just get totally taken by the B three you know sound at the very back you know. Yeah. Like, did did Christopher North play those parts? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Sure. He was an, he's one heck of a uh, technician, wasn't he? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah instrumental. He's a wild man. Yeah. <laughs> we, lo- we loved this guy. We, when we first met him, somebody had built a coffin, an actual coffin with stereophonic headphones inside the coffin. <laughs> and, we, and we went over to this guy's house to meet Chris, and he was inside this coffin listening to music. Wow! After, after he was, I don't know, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what kind of weird cigarette he was smoking, but it was something weird back in the seventies, and and he, we saw, we met this guy crawling out of a coffin. <laughs> true story. A true story. True story. You know, he opened up the coffin and he, and took his, you know, sunglasses off and said hello. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> oh, that's pretty typical. And we were like, this guy, we got to have this guy in the band. <laughs> He, you know, he usually almost every night on stage he would bloody bloody his hands on the B three. Oh my God! <laughs> he, he used to carry around like a box of Hammond B three replacement keys because he would knock knock keys off the keyboard player. He played with such intensity and ferocity. Yeah. So uh, the first Ambrosia record was really like making your Sergeant Pepper's first. Uh huh. So yeah. And then having Alan Parsons come out from England and mix this record after coming off a dark side of the moon, it was unbelievable. I mean, Alan is a genius, and he did a spectacular job mixing the record, and of course he got a Grammy because of mm-hmm. it. And uh, from there, we, we were lucky enough to have that first hit single, Holding On to Yesterday, as well. Well, your second album was, uh, it came out in 76, it was called Somewhere I've Never Traveled, and that was also produced by Parsons, right? That, now, yeah, that record was entirely produced by mm-hmm. Alan. I think a lot of people, you know, just in the general feel of that album is that it might have been the the best album that Ambrosia ever put out. Do you think so? Well, I, you know, some people have said that. I mean, actually, the guys in Toto, I mean, David Page always tells me that's mm-hmm. the best album we ever did. And I respect David so much. Mm-hmm. And um, it's weird. There's some people out there that say the first album is the best and other people that say the second album. And for me... Oh, it's all subjective. For me, it's, I would probably go, I'd lean more towards the first album. Uh-huh. Interesting. Just because of the pain that we went through to make that record was so intense. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It was something about, it's like creating your very first, what you feel is almost like a little mini masterpiece. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, one of the most incredible pianists, uh, keyboard players that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's around, and I'm such a fan of his, uh, Joe Sample, he, he crept up in a, a couple of the cuts there on that third album, didn't he? He didn't, sure did. Oh, didn't yeah. he? And, yeah, uh, he played a song called Apothecary. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was just something we knew nobody in our team could play what we were hearing in our minds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We wanted something that was just hot and killer, and uh, Joe Sample came in and nailed it. That's beautiful. And uh, we even asked him to come back and redo his solo, because we, we, we just weren't, we didn't think it was, you know, exactly what we're looking for and he was nice enough he could have said forget it you know right exactly <laughs> that's all you're getting <laughs> right and he was nice enough to come back and redo the solo and he actually agreed that it was the right thing to do so we were just like wow this is this is cool you know? well, how often does that happen you know get a start like that to, you know have him come back yeah, exactly interesting that's so uh, it was uh, it was incredible on your fourth album, um, it featured basically uh, two 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 songs really rose to the top, and they were probably the biggest uh, songs, the biggest part of me. And you're the only woman. Uh, uh, they hit the charts for a while, and man, you guys you guys were riding high at the end of that fourth album, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, this album called 180, mm-hmm. which was our second album for Warner Brothers. Like I said, that's when we were touring with the Fleetwood Mac and the Doobie Brothers, and we were just, we were just sort of getting so tired of being the opening act, the special guest, and it's like, are we ever going to be a headliner? You know, and our manager kept saying, well, if you know, if you can write songs like the Doobies and like the Beach Boys and like Fleetwood Mac, you're gonna, you've got it. It's all in the songs, you know. And I, mm-hmm. I really just buckled down and said, I've got, I've got to do this. I've got to break through. And luckily, you know, by God's blessings, I wrote uh, the two biggest hits on the record. Biggest, you're the biggest part of me, and. I mean, biggest part of me, and you're the only woman. Yeah. Which those songs took us to the headlining status that we'd sure. always been hoping for. Mm-hmm. And, right. I mean, the, along with the song "How Much I Feel," those songs have become uh, sure. incredible uh, airplay songs on the radio. It's it's blown my mind. I mean, three oh. million airplay and it's still growing. You know? Oh, I know. It's everybody. That those songs are played every single day, and it probably every single world global market. And I'm like thinking, oh my god. I mean, to to 
to be able to stumble across, and I'll use your word, a, a blessing of being delivered a song that you pen it. I don't even know how long it took you to, to, to write in, in, you know, the charts or the parts for biggest part of me. But to see how far that song has come from 1980 as to um, the plays that, that we are today, it must be totally uh, amazing and thinking, how did this whole thing happen? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I, I know how it happened. I yeah. think it's, uh, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person, you know, and I believe it's, it's God's blessing on mm-hmm. my life. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, as I get older, I realize that there's a purpose. I mean, I read the book Purpose Driven Life, mm-hmm. and the, the book's, which has now sold 30 million, has been number one best-selling book in America for three years. Is, is that Rick Warren? Rick Warren, who, and I, my wife and I joined that church, Saddleback, where mm-hmm. he preaches, because we were so blown away. It was such a life-changing book for so many people. I've heard people and, say that, yeah. And it basically talks about, you know, there's a purpose for, for everything. These, these things aren't accidents, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the whole purpose of your life is not necessarily about you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's about God's plan for your life. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I realize now that, that, that all of these things were part of God's plan to, to use me in this life. And um, I use that song, at, um, you know, uh, when I go out and, and sing and I basically talk about how that song, it has more than just one level of meaning to it. Mm-hmm. So um, well, I feel I consider myself very blessed. Yeah. I've just got a couple of additional Ambrosia questions, and we'll move on. But, you know, Ambrosia formed back in 1970, and, and you made records until around 1982. Is that right? Yep. You know, a lot of your songs, like Apothecary, like you described earlier, and some of those other ones, like uh, especially on uh, – the third album, uh, Life Beyond L.A. Yes, that was that was a pretty progressive album. It, but you were known, Ambrosia was known, really, you know, to the general public for their for their ballads. And but you guys went so much deeper than that from from a music from musical yeah. concepting. Absolutely, we, uh, you know, we wanted people to hear the, you know, in a way, we I guess we were a little bit like Genesis, uh-huh. know, where you had right. Phil Collins writing a hit song, mm-hmm. and then you'd buy a Genesis record, and there'd be these cool progressive songs, and you know, we wanted to keep our true to our fan base that, that that supported us from the very beginning. And it was hard to do because a lot of those guys, they don't like you to, to, to have a hit record on pop radio. They're like, oh, you sold out, man. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? We said, you know, well, that means the Beatles sold out, you know, and the Beach Boys sold out. <laughs> true. Said, I mean, <laughs> we down. were always about songs. Sure. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't want to be about arrangements because anybody who's got a you know music degree or pedigree can write fancy arrangements. Sure. But... Strip away the arrangements, and there better be a great song there, or else it, we didn't really want it to be on our record. Mm-hmm. So once we realized that um, we were about the songs and trying to create timeless songs, then the arrangements were just like window dressing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, we were, uh, thank God we were smart enough to realize that that one fact, because, um, I mean, God bless Jethro Tull and the song Aqualong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, God bless him, but th- uh-huh. that, that Aqualong is not going to necessarily be as endearing as, uh, you know, Yesterday by the Beatles. Right. Oh, right, right. You know what I mean? Oh, and absolutely. It's, it's like, I, I'm not, I love Aqualong, by the way. I'm a huge fan, and I think that's an important song, but um, I mean, that's probably a terrible analogy, but you know what I mean? It's almost like... Right, a song like "21st Century Schizoid Man" by King Crimson. That was an important <laughs> song for them and for their band. Right, but when it came down to making a choice of what do you want to do with your life, do you want to write, you know, Frank Zappa music or King Crimson music, or, or do you want to have songs that that could possibly stick around for fifty years <laughs> or a hundred years? Mm-hmm. And I chose the latter. You know, I want right. songs. I was more of a traditional songwriter, a sensibility. Mm-hmm. I want songs that will last and be covered by other people. And Paul Simon is one of my great heroes. Oh, yeah. And that's what I aspired to, was writing those songs that you hear them and they touch you emotionally and they stick around for decade after decade because there's more to them than just st- sounding of the moment, you know? After Ambrosia, you know, you've been moving on with uh, several projects, producing albums and so forth. But in, in speaking of moves, the secret of moving on is the, the name of uh, your current uh, solo release that I'm just so happy that uh, that, that thing came out. And I've got to tell you a story very, very short. Um, last Thanksgiving, I was in Michigan and I was parked in a grocery store and I turned on the radio and I heard a remake of You're the Only Woman. 
And I'm like, and I knew it was a remake because I heard this this uh, bass slap that I had never heard before. And I'm like, and I'm like, you know, who is remaking this? And I noticed you were singing it. I'm like, holy cow! There's a new version of "You're the Only Woman," and I started digging deep. And I, you know, didn't dig too uh, deep before I found out that hey, there's a brand new project. Congratulations on this, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, that. It's great to have been behind the scenes producing all kinds of other artists. And I really enjoy serving other people and being behind the scenes. But uh, I got the opportunity to be a, an artist again. And so many people you know, wrote into my website, you know, which is, of course, davidpack.com. And art, people from around the world that said, please don't stop singing. You know, we want to hear your songs and your voice. And it, it encouraged me. And it, this is really for those fans who never gave up on me. Mm-hmm. I will spend the rest of my life thanking all of them. Uh, I mean, from places like, I mean, all around the Middle East and Peru and, mm-hmm. you know, Germany and uh, places you never realized your music penetrated. Mm-hmm. And, and this was for them. And um, I got the chance through Concord Records and through uh, Russ Freeman from the Rippingtons, sure. his own record label called Peak, and, which is a division of Concord, and uh, my friend David Benoit, you know, uh, we collaborated and wrote the title track, mm-hmm. and I got Ann Wilson of Heart to sing it, sure. which was fantastic. And then, um, amazing song. I got other guest stars like Steve Perry of Journey. Um, he's a dear friend, and we wrote a song together called "Almost a Brand New Start." Mm-hmm. And I asked Steve to co-produce it, and he was reluctant at first, and then said yes and did it and sang on the song. And it's his first duet in probably 15 years. Uh, so the record is it was Timothy Schmidt of the Eagles and Dewey Bunnell from America and quite a, a bunch of friends and, and uh, great stars on their own right who uh, supported mm-hmm. me in this. And uh, I'm still out there promoting this record right now. As a matter of fact, I'm doing two concerts this weekend to, to promote the record. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a really gratifying to have remade two of my own hit records, The Biggest Part of Me and You're the Only Woman, and do them in a little more of a jazz feeling and have them become top 10 singles all over again on American radio yeah. recently. <laughs> That's amazing. That's well, been a blessing, I'll tell you. Well, I understand that that record deal for The Secret of Moving On sort of fell in your lap. It was it was the record label that came to you and said that they loved your voice and, and you should be making records. And That's correct, yes. yeah. And somehow all this came together, I think, at Alan Parsons' wedding? That's right. Yep. Yeah. I sang for Alan's wedding. Yeah. Uh, and um, they, Alan had asked me to sing for their first dance as a, <laughs> as a bride and a groom, and... It was on a catamaran in Santa Barbara. <laughs> Look at that. That belongs to Warren Buffett's partner. <laughs> so, <laughs> quite a catamaran, let me tell you. <laughs> I, I can I'm imagine. sure. And uh, the record label president of Russ Freeman, uh, from the Rippingtons uh, label, uh, a lady named Andy, Andy Howard attended the wedding, and uh, she said, Why aren't you making records? Your voice sounds great. And right. I, said, I said, Nobody's asked me, and I don't really want to go out shopping for a deal. <laughs> you yeah. know? And she says, Well, I'd like to sign you to my label. And that's that's how it ended up. Look at that. And that part of Concord, which is the label that released the Ray Charles Genius Loves Company, right? Mm-hmm. So it was this, you know, a, a label that normally does smooth jazz and and hardcore jazz. And my record is more of a pop record with a little bit of jazz. And so it, it's been interesting for them to work a record that is a little more pop. You know, how's the interest been in you know since the since the the release of the the album? What kind of uh, feedback you're getting? Oh, it's been incredible. Yeah. Oh, my God. I've never gotten such... Rev- I've never in my life gotten the kind of reviews. I mean, even Jazz Is Magazine said it, you know, it was like one of the best albums of 2005. Uh, I, you know, I love... My favorite review of the record is this website. The, the title of the website is It Rocks or It Sucks. I've heard of that. I've heard of that, yeah. It Sucks or Rocks. <laughs> and I thought, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> yeah. I, my record's been reviewed. I went on there, and it said, David Pack's record rocks. That's awesome. Like, All right. I actually printed that out because it's like it sucks or it rocks, and it's like <laughs> they gave me a they gave me a rocks, you know, and that that was my favorite of all the all the reviews because I don't I I expected somebody to blast me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got it my whole career. Even when Ambrosia sure. was at its peak, we right. got these terrible reviews. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, some people just didn't like what we did, but uh, I was shocked that I did not read one review that wasn't complimentary for this record and i can't i mean you can't hope for better than that yeah everybody in the industry that knows me has called me and said they love the record and 
I even got Bernie Toppin from Elton John, who's written all the lyrics. Bernie's an incredible oil painter, and yeah. Bernie uh, did a painting that I loved called Vertical Disbelief, and I, he allowed me to use that as my album cover and all kinds of other artwork in the project. And I actually titled the second song Vertical Disbelief because I love Bernie's title so much. Uh-huh. It worked perfectly for my second track on the album. And... Uh, so what a great collaboration, and hopefully there's going to be more in the future here. Well, we hope to, to see that, uh, that you don't shy away from making new records. I think the, you know, we all want that. I think the public uh, is, uh, is sort of rang your bell again, and hopefully it's, uh, uh, it'll, it'll bring you back to the, to the point that you're, you're writing for yourself now, you know? Oh, thank you. Well, listen, it has. I, I, I went from doing one concert last year to doing 30 this year. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, it's incredible. Like, who is David Pack to this year? Well, David Pack's co-headlining the Greek theater with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. wow. It's been a real breakthrough for me. And uh, people know maybe who Ambrosia is, but they don't know who I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as people connect the dots and they hear my songs on the radio, it, it's been so encouraging. It's like, uh, it's almost in a way, like a tiny, tiny little way like what's happened to Brian Wilson where people rediscovered him, and he went out and started doing live shows. And the miracle is he loves it. And, it's, and now he's doing more and more and more, and I hope yeah. to do the same and, and follow in his footsteps. Well, we hope so, too. We hope, uh, we hope to hear more from you. And, and you, you know, I've, always, I've always appreciated your voice. I think you have one of the most amazing voices in, in rock history. I, I just absolutely love it, and, and uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today, and I appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it, too. I'm sorry i got to run off. But... No, that's okay. Hey, we'll be in touch, David. Awesome. And uh, on behalf of uh, Rick Such, I'm Eddie Cabello. Thanks for being with us on Inside MusicCast. Awesome. Thanks, David. Thanks, you guys. All right, take care. Happy New Year. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to David Pack for joining us on this episode of Inside MusicCast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside MusicCast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside MusicCast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside MusicCast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com.